The Mac Observer's Mac Geek app number 307 for Monday, January 3rd, 2011. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek app. Happy New Year, everyone. You are at the show, or you are listening to the show, where you write the agenda. You ask the questions. You send in your tips. We try to answer your questions. We share our own tips, and we uh, we have a lot of fun together here on the Mac Geek Hub and from Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. <laughs> we do have fun. We do usually, yeah. And uh, unless we violently disagree, but even then, we have fun. And this is John Efron here in Fairfield, Connecticut. Fantastic. Uh, so we are, we're in a new year, which means I need to make a note here to update my automator script that does the show because it plugs the year into the show. And I am certain it's going to try and plug 2010 into the show. Yeah. So. I hope you weren't using any, uh, iPhone alarms there, Dave. Uh, you know, my alarms worked fine this morning. I had, um, oh, of course, John, right. you're talking about the, there's a bug in the iPhone alarms. The non-recurring iPhone alarms will not go off after January 1st, although I think they fix themselves tomorrow morning, January 4th. So I hmm. think it's the first three days. I, I don't know. I, I had a recurring alarm set and it went off fine this morning, although I did set a backup just in case, although I was up before either of them went off. But uh, yeah, that's how uh, that's how it goes. That's how it goes. Uh, so let's see. We've got we've got quite a busy show here. This week we took last week off and uh, you know what? Let's dive right in. Let's start with Ronaldo and Ronaldo writes. I have a question about UPSs and he's talking about the uninterruptible power supplies, not uh, the shipping company. Uh, he says, I recently purchased a 27 inch iMac uh, with winter upon us here in the Northeast. I'm worried about the inevitable brownout blackout hitting at the wrong time during, say, an update or time machine backup. I've been searching online and there's a lot of disagreement about the type and brand of UPS to use with Macs. Adaptive sine wave versus pure sine wave, cyber power versus APC, etc. Uh, I'm looking for a UPS that would let the IMAP, iMac survive a brownout as well as letting it shut down in the event of a longer blackout. I'll probably be adding a Drobo next year and would want to protect that as well, possibly via its own dedicated UPS. What would you recommend? Okay, uh, so... I've been a UPS user for a long time. Started down in Austin, Texas, where we would have in the spring every year, we would have terrible lightning storms. And of course, I was working with a company called Computer Nerds down there for uh, at the time. And any time there was that was kind of a pre geek squad thing that, that we had going on. So we were out helping people with their computers and all that stuff. And uh, any night, John, that there was a blackout or a, a lightning storm of any kind, the phones would be ringing off the hook the next day. And what we found out was that while a blackout, meaning the power goes out for some extended period of time, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, five hours, you know, something longer than just a quick blip was not nearly as bad as that quick blip where it goes out or almost goes out and comes back on, which is commonly referred to as a brownout. Uh, as we probably all know, intuitively, that, you know, turning the switch on your computer off and then on immediately is bad, 
right? Because, you you know, you're going to send current where it's not quite ready to have it sent yet. And, and that just seems like a bad idea. You don't want to do that to a light bulb. You don't want to do it to your computer. And uh, and that's correct. And it is those little quick blips that cause hard drives and motherboards and all sorts of other things to fry. Uh, very rarely is it from a power surge or an increase in power. And most of us are protected against those in a number of ways anyway. Uh, so, yeah. So it was down there that I got involved with UPSs. I've tried lots of different brands. But here at uh, at uh, TMO Towers East, I use APC stuff. It always works with the Mac. The Mac's operating the Mac OS 10 identifies it without any additional software being required. Um, but it, they work on their own, too. I have them protecting my Macs, my router, my TVs, everything. I'm, I'm, I'm silly with UPSs. We're, we're maggoty with them here. So, uh, so, but it's interesting, Dave, because you know you wouldn't think that OS X supports it. Though I know, just just exercising a little Google foo, I mean, if the OS did support it, you would expect it to be in your energy saver preference pane. And you know, I'm looking at mine on both of my machines, and 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 I don't I don't see anything. But, but again, based on the Google foo that I've done, uh, apparently Mac OS X does have support if you plug one in, not just electrically, but uh, through, uh, I guess, a serial port is typically how they, you know, communicate with the uh, with the uh, computer. Uh, it's USB or USB or how the the computer. Well, they, they talk back and forth because I yeah. guess there's there's a little bit of intelligence involved. You know, at the very least, the thing will provide juice to the computer, and that that's good. But then that there's a point where you want some smart things to happen. And I guess that's, that's where the, the OS does support that. Yeah. What it does is uh, when you plug one in via USB, it appears as another option in the energy saver preferences. And so you've got battery. If you're, if you have a, if you're on a laptop, you have three uh, with the UPS, you have battery power adapter and then UPS. And you can set various things like how long uh, until the computer shuts down and you can either do it based on the amount of power left in the UPS or the amount of time left uh, before the UPS feels like it's going to have to have to kick out. Uh, so, yeah, it you know, it I, I think they're great things to have. It's a cheap investment. I mean, you, you know, you're, you're looking at a couple hundred bucks, maybe not even maybe a hundred bucks, maybe one hundred and fifty bucks. And uh and and they work really well. The one thing is, don't plug a laser printer into the battery protected side, um, but be, because laser printers take um, way more power than a computer or another printer, uh, you know, an inkjet printer or really anything else, and and so you'll blow out your battery side uh, far too early if you plug a laser printer in. So that's my. Uh, I, I, but I like them. I, I have a separate one for my router so that that stays on as long as it possibly can and isn't drawn down by a computer. And I plug my cable modem into that one, too. And like I said, I plug my TVs in. I protect my I protect everything with them. I love them. So I don't know about adaptive sine wave versus uh, uh, versus pure sine wave. I've never even run into that when researching UPSs, though. I'm sure it's it's relevant. Do you know anything about any of this, John? Um, other than, you know, I know alternating current alternates and I would assume it's a sine wave, but no, right. I, I, I don't have a lot about that. I've, uh, no, I, I don't have one. I probably okay. should get one. So then again, I, I, I rarely run into uh, power events here. That's a good thing. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, speaking of that, the one time when having a UPS is a pain in the neck is if you are in an extended blackout and you wind up running on generated power, 
many, but not all UPSs are not tolerant of the power fluctuations that you get or the current fluctuations that you get when running on a generator. So if I, if I find that I'm going to be, you know, we have, sometimes we have extended day power outages here and I'll pull the UPS out of the loop um, and then, you know, maybe turn the UPS off and plug everything just into the surge protected side of it uh, so that the UPS isn't beeping like crazy all day saying there's a problem with the power and you know, it's kicking on and off. So, all right. Uh, moving on to Johnny. Johnny has a question about time machine. He says, I've been looking around uh, for an answer that I've not been able to find. I have a 2008, uh, 2008 Mac pro, which has four internal drive bays. I currently have two one terabyte drives, the boot drive with apps, docs, etc., and the second drive for time machine backup. I use Adobe Lightroom to manage my photos and my photo library has grown large enough that I would like to move it to its own separate drive. I was thinking of buying two more one terabyte drives to put in the Mac Pro and would move my photos to one of the drives and use the second drive as a time machine backup of only the photos drive. I can't tell from Apple documentation and from poking around with Google if I can have time machine back up to two internal drives to two other internal time machine drives. In other words, drive A backs up to drive B and drive C backs up to drive D. I thought about a NAS, but would rather stick to the internal drives as they are fairly inexpensive. The photo library is very large and I worry about latency with a network device. Okay. Uh, so many things to talk about here, John. The The first one I'll say is, no, I don't think you can tell Time Machine to back up certain things to certain places. It's everything that you have chosen to back up or everything that you have not excluded from a backup gets backed up all to one place. Uh, so the, on the surface, what Johnny wants to do, no, can't do. Unless you found something, John. I would say what you see in the Time Machine Preference pane is is a hint at this, where it says select disk. Right. And that, that's singular. It lists all the eligible disks in there, certainly. But unless, well, let me see here. Nope, I, I tried to do a, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, some keyboard magic here and try to select more than one of the uh, drives in there, and, and it doesn't happen. So I'm going to assume that they, uh, they, they discourage that. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, well, they don't or, yeah, they just don't. They just don't support it. it yeah. It's one. Yeah, it's one. The you know the drive that you boot from is is where you back up from, and and the drive that you select in in that preference pane is the one that it goes to, and that's uh, that's all she wrote at least for now. Yeah. Now you know, so I thought of a couple of alternatives here, knowing that this isn't possible. Number one is you could uh, use the software RAID inside Disk Utility to link the two drives together to to form one rated rated volume right so you concatenate the drives i think is what uh what that's called and it's raid zero which provides no mm. fault tolerance uh but gives you one if you've got two 500 gig drives well then or two one terabyte drives well now you've got a two terabyte volume that spans across both of those drives uh and then you could back up everything to it and you don't have to to worry about it the the thing you need to worry about, of course, is that if one of those drives fails, the whole thing is essentially gone. You might be able to salvage some of it, but I wouldn't count on it. Uh, so that might not be the kind of thing you want to use for a backup. Or maybe it is. I don't know. But that would be one option. The other is use Time Machine for your boot drive 
and then use something like, you know, super duper or carbon copy cloner for backing up your photos and just have that kind of go its own separate way. That, that I think would work very well. Um, that, that would, that's, you know, those are the two things that kind of jump to mind and anything else, John? No, I'm with you on that. Like, for example, on, on, my, on my setup here, I actually intentionally partitioned, you know, again, growing as a person here, but I partitioned the former one terabyte, three and a half inch drive that I had in the G5. And I partitioned that into half of it for Time Machine off of the Mini and then another half of it just for data. Though I could certainly use that to back up uh, like, yeah, Carbon Copy Cloner is, is my choice. And, and last I checked, they do have a uh, scheduling option with that. Yep. So, um so yeah, that 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 I uh, I agree that that would be the way to go. Yep. Now the the other thing I wanted to comment on here is uh, Johnny says he thought about using NAS network storage device, uh, but would rather stick to the internal drives A because they're cheaper and and B because he worries about latency with a network device. Uh, you know I wouldn't worry about latency with a network device. You, you know you're talking very. I haven't seen any problems, especially with backing up. Uh, we're running across a network. I mean, you wouldn't want to boot across a network necessarily, but for backing up, I, I don't think that latency is going to going to cost you a whole lot. It, it's it's pretty minimal uh, as far as you know, as far as I've ever seen locally on my network here. In fact, the latency across my network is typically far less than the latency of a of a mechanical drive. But you know, I mean, no, as long as you're talking, you know, gigabit Ethernet. Right. Oh, for speed. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's again, that's back to that whole, you know, latency is different from speed. But you're right. Yes, definitely want to do uh, gigabit Ethernet for for the throughput. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Let's see. You know, I want to talk about our first sponsor here, John, and that is Smile Software with text expander and i love talking about text expander because i can't live without text expander in fact it's one of the apps that i am certain to put on my mac the moment uh that i set a, set up a mac and then i completely forget that i have it until for some reason it's disabled or i'm not using it and then i feel like i'm you know hopping around on one foot uh it's a completely uh fantastic piece of software. So here, here's what it does. Text expander. uh, You pump it full of phrases, uh, snippets. They can be pictures. They can be text. Usually it's text, but I have little ones with, with pictures built in Uh, little things that you type often, your phone number, your signature, your address, uh, you know, an auto reply or a semi automated reply to an email where the a bulk of it is th- is the same, you know, something like that. You fill that in in the text expander and then you as- assign it a shortcut. So, you know, for example, my address is comma D.H.A.D.D. And that fills out my entire address. In fact, John, I even have your address in because sometimes people say, what's John's address? I, I need to send him, you know, something for the show. And I have JB ADD and boom, it fills in your address and I don't have to look it up. You know, not only does it save me the time from typing it, but I don't have to go find it anywhere. It's just right there. There's no copy paste. There's nothing. It's just boom. I type those characters and wherever I am in whatever document or email or, or Skype message or whatever it is, boom, it's right there. Uh, so it, it and it really saves a ton of time and it it allows me to do things that I would otherwise avoid doing. Um, 
just because I know it's not going to waste a whole lot of time. It's great to have my phone number in there. In fact, I remember one day I was leaving someone a voicemail and almost spoke my text extent expander snippet for my phone number. It's that ingrained in my workflow. Um, so, you know, it's, it is one of those things that that's fantastic to use text expander from smilesoftware.com. You can of course download a free trial. And then once you're hooked, uh, it's 35 bucks, 34.95 US actually. You save yourself a nickel off of the 35. And then you can also get Text Expander Touch for your iPhone or iPod Touch for 5 bucks or 4.99 and many many apps supported uh on the uh on the iDevices. So, check it out smilesoftware.com Text Expander. You won't be sorry if you haven't already checked this one out. All right, John. Let's uh, let's hear from Mark. Mark has a comment on a previous issue and a question about something new. Hi, John and Dave. This is Mark from Boston, and I have two questions. The first is, uh, on the previous Mac Geek app, you guys were talking about the periodic uh, maintenance scripts that are supposed to run at 3 a.m. or when your Mac is turned back on. Well, I have two Macs here, and on both of them, these maintenance scripts hasn't been run in a while. Um, on, for example, on my uh, Intel Mac Mini, they haven't been run since last September. Uh, is there a way to fix this? Why are they not running when they're supposed to? The second question is probably easier to answer. Does iChat keep a log of your chats? Um, I know it used to do this at one point, because when I did some Google searching, I found that there should be a checkbox um, in settings under messaging. Uh, if you unclick that checkbox, it's supposed to um, stop locking your chats. However, um, when I go into messaging and settings, I don't see this checkbox. And all of the information that I'm finding on Google is telling me to uncheck this box, uh, which I don't see. So any information on that would be helpful. And this is where you cut me off. All right. And we will cut you off. John, you want to take this one? Dave, you know, this is a really weird one, especially, uh, excuse me, getting a new machine here. So so the first question was about the maintenance scripts, which... um, as we know, there is a, a daily, a weekly, and a monthly. And when we discuss this, Dave, um, let, let me get this up here. Hold on. Oh, where the heck is it? There we go. I'm sorry. So you had suggested something, Dave, which actually worked at least on my MacBook Pro. So one thing you suggested is that for some reason, uh, they may not be, they need a little kickstart. They may not be uh, scheduled properly. And the, the way to go about that, which I did, was to execute a command, which would be sudo, Launch control, L-A-U-N-C-H-C-T-L, load, dash W, and then the name of the script, um, which, you know, is system, library, launch daemons, and then would be com.apple, periodic, daily, weekly, or monthly. And so I did that, and sure enough, at least on my MacBook Pro, they started running again when they should. You know, the daily runs, uh, I see it running every day. The weekly ran when it should, and the, and the, the monthly one just ran on, uh, of course, uh, January 1st. So I thought, well, you know, that, that solves the problem. However, as you know, I also got the Mac Mini, and I thought, well, you know, let me check out the Mac Mini. Now, I did do a migration assist on this, but it did come with, you know, it has the, the latest OS on there. Now, you, you migrated from, obviously, you're running Snow Leopard on the Mac Mini because you can't run anything else, but the machine from which you migrated was running 10.4. Five Leopard, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Just wanted to make sure. Yeah, but the, you know, the scripts were there. So, you know, I looked just to make sure they're there. And I even used our, uh, our pal Lingon. Yeah. To make sure they're there. And uh, Lingon is a, a very nice utility that shows you, you know, a- anything that I guess is handled by LaunchD pretty much is uh, Lingon will let you look at them. And sure enough, I see them here, you know, com.apple uh, under the system daemons category. I see them in there. But when I looked to try to, you know, see the last time they were run. And, you know, one way to do this is you go to private slash private slash var slash log. And then ls space dash l is what I do space star dot out. And I'm looking right now, Dave, and the date on all of them is January 2nd, which is the last time I manually ran them. So I tried your trick. You know, I tried the launch control trick. And the thing is, when I tried to do launch control, it said, well, no, they're, they're, they're already loaded. They're ready to go. When I did it on the MacBook Pro, they were not. I, I didn't hmm. get an error. Okay. Now, since you've run that launch control command, they're still not running, correct? Yes. Okay. So, I, okay. So my question is, have you run them manually using sudo space periodic space daily to run the daily one? Well, I ran them. Well, I ran them from Onyx manually on okay. January second. <clears throat> okay, and did but any I of them run this morning? No. Well, none of them would, except for the daily. But right. the daily did not. No, okay. the output from the daily indicates that it did not. Huh. So now I'm gonna. Here's what I'm gonna suggest for this, Dave. So one, and and you know, there's an article that that we we refer to, and I. I read over it again, and it's at the uh, the X Lab. And okay. basically, what the guy says here is, it's possible that if the machine is not on when these things are scheduled to run, and typically they're scheduled to run at some you know three in the morning. Sure. I guess the idea being is that if a machine is on, you're probably not going to be using it at three in the morning, though. You know who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, but based on my experience here on the mini, I'm, I'm not seeing them run. And again, when I try to do that launch control thing, it, it says, no, no, I'm, you know, they're, they're loaded. I'm, I'm ready to, but, but the machine has not been on at, at three in the morning. So, so number one, you either want to be up at three in the morning to get these to run. But here's another thing I'm going to suggest. Now they warn you against this. Well, two things you can do. So one, and here's what the article suggests. So one is you can run them manually. Okay. Onyx right. will let you do this. And I, I would say Onyx is probably the best way to do this. So yeah. Onyx will both show you. Right. Or, or you could do a, you know, a pseudo. Um, yeah, no, no, I agree with you. Onyx is, it's free. It, it, it's not included with the OS, but it's free to download and it makes it so easy that it's not worth messing with the terminal. That's right. I mean, the other thing is you could fire up Lingon. You want to be a little careful here, but you can. Lingon will let you change the uh the parameters for the script so for example i'm looking here um you know at the periodic daily for example so you know if you double click on that you get a screen with various attributes and there's a miscellaneous attribute here and it says start calendar interval and right now the daily is set for minute 15 hour three well you know i mean you could change it i mean i i don't think anything that this does is going to grind your system to a halt no you may want to change it to a time where you think your machine will be on and you're not going to be doing any heavy lifting. But, but it seems that the, the facility to do this, although I thought you and I were both under the impression, Dave, that it should, if the machine's not on, you know, catch up 
and and run it at the next available opportunity. It seems that that is not the case. At least that that is my personal experience here. So that's weird because I you know I've got uh, whatever one two three let's let's say five Macs here at the house and they all sleep at at various times. I mean they're all set to go to sleep other than well actually one of them and I'm not sure if I counted that one or not but it, you know the, of the ones that are set to go to sleep these scripts run. All the time, if they don't run while they're asleep, they do run once they've woken up. So it, I, I'm not so so it definitely works sometimes. You know, I, I was really curious to find out that running it manually did not fix this for you. Yeah, that's what I was hoping. I thought, yeah. you know, like on the other machine, it kind of kickstarts it right. and once it's, it's comfortable doing it. Um, Yeah, that's it's weird. I, you know, it. In the old days, I would say to look at the cron logs to see what's happening when it should run. But of course, this isn't using cron. This is using launch D. And off the top of my head, I don't know where to look. So we'll have to research, you know, what log file would be written by the uh, by this service. I, it's very, very, although it might just be something in system logs, you, could, you know, look at all messages, John, and search for, uh, you know, that time. And and see if there's anything at 3.15 a.m. today where it says, like, look, I tried to start this and couldn't or, you know, was the machine asleep during that period? But you say it's not, you know, what, whatever, I'd, you know, very interesting and also interesting that this machine was migrated up, uh, although, you know, migration assistants should not make a difference here. This is a system level thing that migration assistant just doesn't touch. I don't know. No, I'm, I'm assuming it was there from, you know, the OS that was already installed. That though you know, yeah. I reapplied yeah. the uh, latest combo updater just to okay. just to make sure. Though I, I don't even know if that's part of the combo updater, but you know, I was thinking maybe a permission wasn't set right or something. But sure, you know, I tried everything and it's it's still not a uh, still not running them. So man, that's weird. Uh, yeah, weird. I don't know, I don't know why I tend to have the machines that don't do this or uh, you know Mark does and and you're somehow blessed. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, okay, so Mark's uh, second question, John. Well, second question. I was able to find it. Now, this is, a, you know, it's buried kind of deep, not where you'd expect it, but um, but to log the iChats, which uh, normally you'll see, or at least I see, Dave. I, you know, I don't use iChat as often as I used to. Right. Um, but it should default to uh, your documents folder, um, in your documents folder, and then uh, iChats. And I think there's even something that's searchable with uh, with Spotlight. So, you know, you can, you know, get all the dirt from your, uh, you know, current or former friends. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you go to iChat, Preferences, Messages, there is then a Save Chat Transcripts to checkbox. And you can select whatever folder you want. And so any iChat you have will be logged. And if you click on it, it actually brings it up very nicely within, you know, as if you just had... The, the the chat in question yeah so so that's that's where that's uh buried i, I guess they they tend to you know shuffle that around or uh, and I, I i didn't hmm? i believe it's off by default correct oh um pretty sure it's off by default but you can turn it on um and i yeah, found it I mean, really handy i mean if, especially if you're using these things for work you know sometimes there's sometimes there's something that happens in an iChat that doesn't happen anywhere else you're like God, what did he say I, I forget you know what's that that password or what's that ip or you know whatever it is that it's nice to have that stuff logged um if you you mentioned spotlight john in leopard 
there was a separate entry for putting um for searching or for showing iChat um yeah uh, notes in the results in Snow Leopard it is lumped together with mail messages so if you have gone into spotlight preferences and unchecked the uh mail messages section then spotlight chats will not show up this is in system preferences spotlight search results and you'll see mail messages that also includes iChat chats uh, hmm. so if you have turned off mail messages for your system wide spotlight results then you will not see iChat messages either hmm yeah that's kind of silly i agree it drove me crazy for a while. It's like, how come it's not searching these? And then I'm like, well, let me try turning this on. Oh, yeah, there they are. So. All right. Uh, moving on to Keith, John. Sure. Okay. Keith writes, I have a 17-inch MacBook Pro from May of 2009. It has an Express Card 34 slot, and I have a 32-gig Transcend Express Card SSD that I have used in the past for extra storage. Is it possible for me to install OS 10 on it and start at my Mac with the express card as my boot drive? If so, what is the best way to do this? One thing I noticed when using the express card as storage only is that when the MacBook wakes up from sleep, the OS gives a warning that the disk has not been ejected properly. If it is possible for me to put OS 10 on the card and boot from it, will I see better performance? What happens if I decide to boot from my hard drive and will there be preferences or other data that is in the wrong place? Okay. Uh, wow. Lots of questions again, right? Let's let's get started here. Yeah, so so I actually did this, Dave, so I'm, I'm going to dive in right here. Go ahead. So what is an express card slot, you may ask? Well, it, it's not. I think it's only now available on the 17-inch uh, MacBook Pro machines. It okay. is no longer, as far as I know, available on, like, you and I, I right. think, were one of the last machines, Dave, of the 15-inch MacBook Pros that had the express card slot. So here's what an express card is. It's kind of an interesting little beast. So, so it was the thing that came after PCMCI and allows you to plug all sorts of things in here. But, you know, as I read this, I, th I thought it was kind of weird, especially when he mentioned this eject thing, because I hadn't run into that. But then here's what an express card can be. So it's, it, it has a split personality, Dave. Okay. An express card in of itself is not a single bus, but it can be one of two buses, which I learned talking um, with Keith here, or, or emailing back and forth. So in my case, the SSD that I have, when, when I plug it in, it actually so, shows up on the uh, on the SATA bus. And okay. I learned this because I looked in the system profiler and looked under SATA, and oh, look at that. I saw a new... Uh, so the existing SATA bus I have in there is the Intel ICH8-MAHCI. Okay. But right. then when I put in the express card, another one showed up called Unknown AHCI Standard Controller. Right. And then below that, the what I called the, uh, the drive. Now, the thing that annoyed me, Dave, and you recall this with our particular machine, and I still don't know why Apple did this, is that the built-in SATA controller is a SATA 2, I think, or a SATA 1, and that its link speed is 1.5 gigabit. Uh, I think it's... I think it's it's just a limited link speed. I don't think it's a different version of SATA. I think it's just the link speed that's limited. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So maybe it still is SATA two or yeah. SATA I think it, yeah. But here's the thing: when I when I looked at the uh, link speed for the unknown AHCI standard controller, it was three. 
Okay. Why is that? Eh. Well, the re- yeah, I can tell you why it is, right? It's because why? it's using a different SATA controller. Ah, okay. right. The SATA controller is on the express card, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the express card is just a, you know, a direct access to the system bus, like, like the old card slots were back in the, you know, or, or like they are in a Mac pro, right. Or, you know, like we had in all our old machines. So in this case, both the drive or the SSD and the SATA controller are on the express card. Right. Right. So in my case, and actually I did this just for kicks here. Now, you know, it is a relatively small drive and only, uh, you know, mine's 48. And I think you have the same one too, Dave. I do. And he's got a, um, Keith's got a 32. So. Yeah. But, you know, just for kicks, uh, you know, booted up Snow Leopard, installed it, you know, formatted it, installed OS 10 on there and upgraded it. And when it's in the machine and I select it as a startup disc, it, it you know, it works uh, swimmingly. You know, yeah. it's really nice, nice and zippy. Yep. And fast. Now, his is a little different because when I wrote, he wrote back and said, oh, well, you know, I see something different. And now this explains what he was seeing. So the one thing, so his shows up on the USB bus. So this is the nature of the express card. It can be either SATA or USB. So well, his device. I, don't, I think, it, again, I think it's whatever controller. I don't, I don't think right, it right. is a separate. I don't think it's an express card thing that forces I'm, sh- I'm sure you could put a firewire controller on the thing too in yes. fact many people have right, right? so it's just no, I, I agree with you okay the so his express just, card doesn't dictate what type of bus the device stuck in there will be well it, it dictates be, express card <laughs> right i mean it, but but it doesn't dictate whether it's sata or usb or as you're pointing out maybe it could be firewire sure it could be anything that the the, the machine or, or anything that they want to put on the express card but Bingo. from what i've seen the two most common are usb or or SATA. Right. There was a, there, I think there was a FireWire 800 express card uh, card uh, at first when those machines came out, which was handy because there was no FireWire 800 port on the original uh, MacBook Pros. So. Right. So in his case, now what he was seeing, though, I think, so when he's using it as a drive that he mounts after the fact, and I think this just in general happens with a USB drive, is that if you mount a USB drive after you boot the machine, um, if you don't eject it, then you will get a warning. Okay, yeah, that's, that's what right. He's saying. Right, right, right. But from what I found, um, what I, from what I found, because I did this temporarily when I ordered the Mini and my machine was off for repair, I took the drive out of my machine and put it in an external USB enclosure. And as long as I booted from that, everything was fine. It didn't complain because it was the, the boot drive. Right, right. So I guess my answer is, and I yes. saw that with the SATA drive too, because I booted from it, and and it's fine that way. But but you do sometimes get that message upon wake from sleep that that says the device was yanked uh, improperly. So yeah. So to answer his question, is it possible for him to put OS ten on the card and boot from it? I would say the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely, unless you're running. The original MacBook Pro, those those just couldn't boot from the Express Card, but uh, but otherwise, and he's not. So yeah, absolutely, a- absolutely, yeah. Now the second question: Will he see better performance? I'd say almost certainly. Although it's USB two, and that was another question. Right. It showed up as as high speed USB, which the the current definition is. USB two, which is four eighty megabits per second, right? But you know, and a handoff to you. So, so 
that could be a limiting factor, but the fact that it's an SSD, I would say, versus whatever drive he's using now, unless it's a you know very blazingly fast high-end mechanical drive, I would say, even though, again, he's limited by the USB 2 speed, right. he would see at least, if not better, performance from that. Now, now to me, the challenge, though, Dave... Is you know that's kind of a tiny little drive. I mean, you can certainly get OS 10 within 32 gigs, but my concern would be how are you going to segment everything else that you need? Yeah, what what I would do? Let's see. There's a couple options with this, and I don't want to go too deep here. We've got a lot of other questions to answer, but um, I would install OS 10. There's one way would be to install OS 10 and make that the boot drive, but then move the home folder to your uh, spindle drive. That's still in the machine. Uh, that way you're booting from the express card, but you're not trying to store all your documents on there. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that would help. I, I think that would help because you're also then storing your swap space on the SSD. Unless of course you move that too, but, but I think that would help and having it split up, having um, you know, having the OS on a different mechanical or not on the same mechanical drive as your documents, probably going to help quite a bit. Actually, that that would be one way to do it. The other way would be to boot from the internal drive and store your documents on the SSD. But I think you're going to see more of a speed benefit booting from that SSD, assuming it's not some terribly slow SSD. And, and to be fair, and I don't know this one, but, uh, but there are some really slow express card SSDs. They're, they're like, you know, glorified uh, flash sticks. So don't, you know, don't mm. confuse that with a real SSD. Some vendors are fine. You just got to look on the website and see what the specs are on the, uh, on the, on the SSD drive itself. That's being baked in there. You know, re- remembering that most of the, the actual SSD drives that you would buy, are going to be in the, you know, 100 plus megabyte per second range. If you see these in the, oh, it's, you know, it's a 20 megabyte per second, 30 minute. Now stay away from them. You know, that's, that's not really, I mean, yes, it's SSD, but you're not going to get all the benefits that everybody talks about with SSD. Oh, I I tried that once with a very small one, one of what we call a, call a thumb drive or a flash drive. No, technically I think you can do it. Oh, and it actually leads into our next question. I think, but yeah, but um, yeah, those are a, a whole different class of memory, and uh, you know, especially the latency and stuff is uh, yeah, yeah. Technically, it's possible, and I guess in a pinch, it's it's yeah. it's a good thing to do. But in fact, let's go on to let's go on to Edward now. Uh, he writes, "I do a lot of traveling, and I'd love to carry a USB flash drive with Mac OS X Drive Genius and Disk Warrior that would be a bootable copy." I tried this by making a disk image of Mac OS X Snow Leopard's install disk and the Disk Warrior and Drive Genius CDs I have using Disk Utility. Then I formatted a 16-gig flash drive using Mac OS X journaled and under Options selected GUID so it would be bootable. I then copied the previously created Mac OS X install DVD image onto the USB flash drive and rebooted holding the Option key but the USB flash drive did not appear as an option to boot from. What am I missing? Okay, so yeah, it, you're right. It, it it floats currently in it floats perfectly into the previous discussion because it, this is a perfect instance where installing the OS on a flash drive makes good sense. It's a nice little backup. It's in your pocket. It's easily portable. You know all that good stuff, and you can you're willing to sacrifice speed to do it because it's a, it's to be used in an emergency. It's not your daily run from drive, if you will. 
But, you know, I got to give Edward credit here for creativity because now I, I just read over the question again and I, I understand his intent. Right. And although we say the Mac just works, it, 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 he, he made an assumption about disk images. Right. He got close. He got real he, close. He got very close. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the answer, what happened, Edward, is you now have a flash drive formatted Mac OS 10 journaled with no operating system and a disk image of the install disk for the operating system sitting on it. Uh, so the machine can't boot from that disk image sitting on your flash drive. What you need is to have an, a working install of OS 10 on that drive. And there's one of two ways to do it. One would be to simply boot from your OS 10 install DVD or CD and install OS 10 on the drive. Or if you wanted to have that portable version of the OS 10 installer with you in disk utility, click on the restore tab in the restore tab. You set the source and destination. Use your OS 10 disk image as the source and the blank USB disk as the destination. And that's then going to clone your Mac OS 10 install DVD right onto that 16 gig USB stick. And when you boot it, it'll boot like you're going to install OS 10 and you've got all that you would ever want to have right there. That that's, that's my, that's the two things that come to my mind, John. I don't know about you, but well, you know, I'm now that I think about it. So, so basically what the problem here is that uh, the, the OS doesn't understand what a disk image is or rather a dot ISO file. Okay. Which is what a disk image is, or, or at least last that I checked. Right. That's how it's represented. Now, on the other hand, you know, Mac OS 10 is smart enough versus some other operating systems. Well, at least now I think Windows does it. But even the early versions of Mac OS 10, if you double click on a .iso file, it'd be like, oh, I know what this is. And it would mount a disk image or, or, or a CD, typically a CD, to your desktop. But the thing is, the, the I guess the firmware... It isn't yeah. quite smart enough to, to peek into that file. In theory, I think it could work. It's yeah, just it not would, a feature. It would have to be baked. Like you said, it would have to be baked into the Mac's firm. Reading disk images would need to be a part of the Mac's firmware. And whereas now it's a part of the operating system. And if you have the right. operating system on a disk image, you're now in a chicken and egg situation. And it's, you know, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So I, I, I like it. I, I think it, it'd be a nice feature to have. Oh, it'd be great. Can you imagine having a, a thumb drive full of disk images and you put it in and you hold down the option key or whatever and it says, oh, hey, here's this thumb drive. Pick the disk image from it that you want to boot from and I'll go ahead and boot. That'd be killer. You know, you put a Linux install, you put all kinds of stuff. I mean, it'd be great, but that's just not this. It doesn't work that way, but it'd be great. That'd yeah. Be, so yeah, it, we should do that because, you know, they could standardize on a disk image format. That'd be great. I like that. You know, I, I seem to recall in the back of my, I, I wonder if it's some flavors of Linux, I think may be able to, uh, to do this. Or there may actually be some for the Mac that can do this, you know, a special firm or some, some bootloader or something like that that could do it. So, yeah, yeah, there's gotta be something. Huh? But again, so, so hats off to Edward for, for, uh, looking to the future of Mac OS 10. There you what, go. What it, what it will do one day. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right, I want to talk about our second sponsor for this show, John, which is Circus Podings with Notebook, both for the Mac and for the iPad. Uh, Notebook is an application that allows you to store data 
completely together all different all different types of uh, data about a particular subject all in one place. You can, of course, take notes by typing on the keyboard. You can pull in graphics. You can pull in PDFs. You can pull in scans and have it read those as text or just leave them as graphics. You can then add notes uh, to your text. You can add notes to your PDFs by means by way of stickies. And then you can search the whole thing uh, based on what you remember. Do you remember what day you did it? Do you remember what you typed? Boom, it goes through it and it finds it. And of course, you can sync your notebooks between the Mac and the iPad. And yes, you can edit on the iPad. Uh, an idea, you know, a, a concept would be, well, if you're taking a class, right, and the teacher's got uh, handouts that uh, he or she is doing via PDF, uh, or if you just scan the handouts that you get via paper, you can put those in and you keep all your notes from the classroom there. And then you put the, you know, you get your lecture notes and you've got your handouts and boom, everything's together. When it comes time to study for the test, you've got the whole class as you experienced it laid out right there uh, in a nice digital form. You can back it up again. You can copy it to and from your iPad and uh, and it works really, really well. So uh, circusponies.com is where you'd go to check this out. Uh, the notebook for the Mac is available as a free trial. So I recommend you start there, download it. Once you're hooked, it's uh, 50 bucks, actually $49.95, save a nickel. And you can have it uh, have a license for your Mac. If you're a student, you get it for $29.95 or a teacher or an admin or anybody that has anything to do with a qualifying educational institution. Uh, notebook for the iPad is $29.99 for everyone because that's how the app store works. And you can check them all out. Circusponies.com. All right. Let's uh, let's see what Todd has to say here, John. Hi, John and Dave. This is Todd from Kenosha, Wisconsin. I am trying to help my wife as my as her IT department in helping in fixing her Gmail account. She uses mail.app for her email, but she had Gmail set up as a pop account until very recently. Um, then she got an iPhone and, and I, trying to be helpful, uh, moved her Gmail over to IMAP. Now she's got all of these folders in mail.app that are all pop, um, that are local from the pop account. And she's got all of the, all of the stuff that came over with the IMAP account and and I'm trying to figure out: Is there a way to convert all of that local stuff into um, back into her Gmail account? They're all still there; they're archived. It's just that they aren't from that local set, and so they don't have the folder structure. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that now that it's using IMAP, um, all of her junk mail is still showing up in her inbox. It's labeled as junk mail. I've got mail.app set to um, automatically put the junk mail into the trash, um, as I think is Gmail, and yet it's still uh, it's still showing up, and it is a real pain in the neck. So help me out here, guys. This is where you cut me off. Awesome. All right. Uh, so before we dive in with any answers here, there's one thing I want to share about migrating from a pop account to an IMAP account especially if you're doing it on the same server, because in mail app, you define different accounts in the preferences. And the initial thought 
at least the first time I did this was, all right, let me remove the old account. I don't want to be checking two mail accounts and have duplicate copies of everything. So let me remove the old account and then add the new one. The problem is with pop mail, of course, everything is stored on your Mac. And when you remove an account from mail, it removes that account. It's inbox, it's sent messages folder, it's drafts, it's trash from your Mac. And so anything that was in any of those folders just goes away. Uh, so just be very careful about how you do this. Anything that's in the, as mail calls it, the on my Mac folders, that works out fine. And that sticks around and, and persists regardless of what you do with accounts. But anything that's stored in those kind of account defined mailboxes will go away when you delete a pop account. It also goes away when you delete an IMAP account. But of course, IMAP stores everything on the server. So the next time you create or attach to that IMAP account, all those messages will be there with pop. Not so much. OK, uh, with that said, so you've you've migrated from pop to IMAP and whatever process you took, you've still got these pop folders around and you want to have them now on the IMAP server. Uh, really, the best way to do it. Uh, and I have not seen any automator scripts or, or any software that automates this, but the best way to do it is to create IMAP folders that match the ones that you want to uh, migrate from your pop account. So if you have a folder called, uh, you know, uh, active tasks or current projects or whatever, you create your current projects as an IMAP folder on your IMAP account and then simply move the messages from your current projects pop folder to your current projects IMAP folder. And now it'll live on the IMAP server. Um, that it, it's if you have thousands of folders, this is a tedious process. But if you have, you know, a dozen or a couple dozen, it's not that bad. Um, and that that really is the the best way to, to do this. If you if you do have thousands and they're all in the on my Mac section, well, you don't really need to worry about it unless for whatever reason you need to have them on the IMAP server. You can just leave them on your Mac and all that works fine as long as you're in mail app. So I, I hopefully that answers part one of the question. Do you, you, you just went through something similar, albeit a little bit different, John. Do you have anything to add here? No, I've, I've uh, you know, I upgraded to mail, but I, I still have one account that's popping two that are IMAP and I not I, I have not tried to... Uh, to mix the two. Okay. So. Okay. okay. Or it's not even an option for the one that's popped there. Uh, you know, I got to yell at them again and see if they're, they're going to move over to IMAP because I prefer to use IMAP for everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't expect your ISP to move over to, uh, to IMAP. I, I don't think any ISPs that I know of, at least none of the big mm -hmm. ones have done that. Uh, just, well, just because it's a, it's a storage space, it's a storage and CPU hog. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, what I would say is just get yourself a Gmail account and uh, and route everything there. Forward the mail from your from your pop account to that. And that way you can manage it all with uh, with IMAP mm -hmm. from that, that, you know, and that Gmail's free and you're good to go. That's my theory. All right. Uh, as far as junk mail, you know, Gmail's a little funny in that IMAP and your Mac treats mail as being in folders, but Gmail doesn't really subscribe to the whole concept of folders. Their IMAP implementation is a little bit funky that way. So it's possible that mail's junk mail filter and Gmail's junk mail filter are having a little bit of a battle. 
So what I would say is honestly, the first thing I would try is just turn off mail's junk mail filter, turn off spam, sieve, turn off whatever it is you've got and see if Gmail's junk filtering on its own works well for you. Um, it's going to have a mailbox in, you know, on the server called spam. Anything that you find that is spam uh, from your inbox, just move to that junk folder. And I guess you could use mail's junk facility to move things to Gmail's spam folder. Uh, but again, I'd try it without try to try to do it manually. See if Gmail catches up with with your spam preferences. And then anything you find in that spam folder that's not spam, all you got to do is move it out of that folder and that trains Gmail that it's not spam. The, the only trick is when you want to empty your spam folder after you've combed through it and pulled out all the false positives and all that stuff. Don't delete on your Mac, because what that's going to do is that's going to move the messages from the spam folder to the trash. And in doing so is because you're moving them out of that spam folder, it's going to train Gmail that everything that you just moved is not spam. Um They've said that there's there's some fix in the works that may have already been in, instituted, but I wouldn't risk it. What I would do is after you go through and I use your use my Mac to go through and, and comb through the spam. Once I'm done, I go to the web interface for Gmail, go to spam and say empty all spam messages now and boom, they go away. And uh, and that that works really, really well for me. And and I don't use any third party spam filtering um, or any client side spam filtering. I'm just letting Gmail do it all on the server. The, the benefit of that, of course, is when I'm checking for my iPhone or iPad, it the spam filtering is the same there as it is on my Mac because there's no software in the way, uh, you know, doing that. So how do you how do you handle spam on your on your IMAP accounts? Do you let the server do it, John, or are you still using something like Spamsive or uh, for G? Well, Gmail handles its own. Right. So. Yeah. And, and yeah, you, you had advised me to, uh, you know, not, not, uh, don't mess, mess with, with it. it. Um, and then for my other IMAP account, which is a dot Mac account, I, I use, I, I use spam civ. Spam civ okay. is just, you know, spam civ. Though, though Gmail, I got to say, Gmail is really, really good. Yeah. But I also like spam civ because, uh, every, you know, every now and then I, I see, you know, people come up with new tricks and every now and then one will slip through. But, uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You that's can train right. it. So, my, my, so I'm, Oh, no, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm done. I was going to say my biggest problem with Gmail spam filtering is it has more false positives than I was used to with. We, I used D spam previously. I, mm-hmm. I've been using server side spam filtering for several years, uh, actually more like four years, uh, ever since I had my trio and wanted, you know, spam filtering before the messages got to my trio. And, and it was, so it was the same sort of thing, but of course running D spam on our own server, I, had you know full control over my spam and my definitions were mine alone and i really could tweak them out and i never had a false positive or very rarely did now i get them you know enough to where i have to comb through my spam every two weeks um and that's just because gmail spam filtering kind of comes from the you know the hive mind right where everybody's uh, everybody's definition of spam is, is mixed together. I think there's some personal preferences where it leans one way or another, but, uh, but in a general sense, I think it's, it's kind of using that hive mind mentality. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, I'm going to move on to Mark here. Mark writes, uh, he says, hi, John. I, I also am having issues with my MacBook pros trackpad. 
It seemed to happen after the 10.6.5 update. The symptoms are, after some undetermined time, sometimes one to three hours, the trackpad would freeze and sometimes the keyboard would also not work. If I, I could use a wireless mouse, a USB mouse, and my USB keyboard, no problem. If I restarted, the trackpad and keyboard would then start working again. If I did a PRAM SM, I, I did a PRAM reset, SMC reset, ran Onyx, Drive Genius, and Tech Tool. None of those fixed it. It would still freeze. I turned off Bluetooth and turned off my Bluetooth Magic Mouse and put four Post-it notes in the battery compartment over the ribbon wire where the, when, put, when I put the battery pack in. The Post-its idea came from a forum I read, and it doesn't seem to matter whether they're in the battery compartment or not. The trackpad has not frozen since. I think the solution is having the Bluetooth off and no other devices with Bluetooth on in distance around my MacBook Pro. John, let me know what Apple does with your MacBook Pro. There must be some kind of conflict with Bluetooth. Uh, so I'm going to tell you my story, Dave, okay. because, you know, I got the machine back. And I'm just so happy. So Apple Care, at least for a portable, is absolutely worth it. So here's what happened when I got it back. Now, you know, I was a little worried because, um, you know, just, just between me and you, Dave, you know, I, I didn't tell them this. But you recall I had a little incident. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And replaced some of the parts myself. But there was no. So you didn't you didn't tell them about the beer that spilled on your MacBook Pro? No, I did not. I did not offer that. <laughs> they didn't I, I ask, was, did I, they? They did not ask and I did not offer it. But now, there, and the thing is also is that our machine, Dave, now I do believe future MacBooks do have a liquid damage indicator. Ours does not. I, I check this out and I'll see if I can find a link to it. It's a beautiful thing. But also, no, I, I was able to before, and the thing is the liquid did not get inside my machine. I was able to uh, save it. So as soon as the incident occurred, I grabbed the machine, turned it upside down, put it on a towel, pulled the battery. And, and I even looked afterwards, and the liquid did not get inside the machine at all. The, 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 the way the keyboard is constructed, I guess it's surrounded in black electrical tape, and it kind of is like a little well. So no liquid got inside the machine. So, And, and as you know, or, or if you don't, but AppleCare, basically, if they get the machine and they determine that you screwed it up, they're going to let you know, and they're going to charge you accordingly. In my case, they did not. So I called them up, and, and now the, the symptoms that Mark indicates, I had the exact same ones. And now here's what I'm going to suggest that he looks for, because I noticed this as well. So I would have both the trackpad and the keyboard would occasionally, yeah, sometimes I get, you know, jerky trackpad response, and sometimes the keyboard would freak out. And also, I, we just got a follow-up email from him. He'd have another symptom, which I would also, is that sometimes a key would repeat. So clearly there was something on the USB bus somewhere, because... Both the trackpad, if you look in System Profiler, both the trackpad and the keyboard are on the USB bus, as is the Bluetooth. <clears throat> so, now the reason I, I, when I reported the problem, so if you go online, you can report the nature of the problem. And I reported no mouse trackpad response, which I think was the closest classification. And, and I think you, you suggested this, Dave. When you go online, if, if you can do work for them up front, it'll make life a lot easier. So I basically went there, described the nature of the problem, and I actually did the callback thing, which was kind of funky. It was like 5 of 5, and I said, call me back at 5 p.m., and they called me back at 5.03 p.m., and I was just like, oh, my gosh, this service is just awesome. And the guy talked to me. I basically told him what the problem was. And, and the one thing I'm going to suggest to Mark is the um, what I noticed in the console was several messages of the uh, the format Apple USB multi-touch driver validate checksum checksum incorrect or Apple USB multi-touch driver message KIO USB message 
port has been reset. So at some level, the USB port connected to the multi-touch was, was just having a really bad time. So in his case, I'm going to say that the two are related. Now, as, as to what they did for me, Dave? Yeah. Now, this is the weird part. So I got the report back. Now, I wasn't able to get the status online. I guess you have to be right there to see what they did. It just said machine repaired, and they actually got it in and out within a day. And you're right, it is in Texas. Okay. They got it in and out within a day. And here's what they said. Oh, here's your machine. We replaced these parts. Logic board. Symptom. Graphics processor issue on MLB. And I'm like... MLB being main logic board. I'm like, huh? That's odd, but okay. Well, you know, th- though I recall, Dave, is that I do believe that some some of our, not our particular machine, but some MacBooks did have an issue with the NVIDIA chip. Well, hey, your, your Apple Care is up in, what, about a month and a half, so... That's yes. Perfect. So that is <laughs> new, beautiful. New motherboard. Brilliant. That's excellent, man. And they also replaced the top case, which I did also. Symptom, no mouse trackpad response, which is what I described to him. And just to throw it in here, keyboard, built-in keyboard, not recognized. Okay. Now, they also look kind of beat up, and so I wonder if they just saw them and looked at the, you know, they've they gone through heavy use here. Plus, yeah. well, they were parts that I had replaced. I mean, they were, you know... From the same machine or sure. same class of machine, I got it from my fix it. But basically, they pretty much replaced, <laughs> you know, the whole darn machine. Now, what I got to say impressed me, Dave, was that so not only was the serial number the same, but all of my network interfaces were the same as well. Because I thought, oh man, I'm going to have to go through the whole, you know, set it up a time machine and and, and all of that stuff. But no, not only I know the serial number, they have a magic tool that will reburn the serial number because having a different serial number can introduce problems, but. Well, from what I've heard in the past, they usually change the uh, all the MAC addresses of all the network interfaces change. But in my case, they did not. I think the utility me. they run yeah. can can clone all that stuff, um, including the MAC addresses. And, and that's a good thing. I mean, it obviously saves, you know, they 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 probably do that more now or are more conscientious about doing that now that everybody's using time machine and it's a big fiasco. Uh, when somebody gets their machine back with a different Mac address, you and I know at least what happened. You know, somebody else like, what do you mean? It's a different computer. It's the same computer. They just, you know, and then and, and now the phone rings and all they got to do is run that utility and the phone doesn't ring. Right. So that's a beautiful right. thing. So I think what happened is they said, you know, this machine had issues with some of these machines had issues with the graphic processor. So we're going to toss that in there. Yeah. And since the customer reported an issue with the. The trackpad will replace that. And since the keyboard's part of that whole assembly as well, well why don't we throw that in there too? And they right. ship, you know, shipped it out to me. So I, I have pretty much a brand new machine and uh, I'm, I'm very, very pleased with Apple Care. And, and, you know, they got back to me saying, are you happy with the service? Totally thrilled. Now, Mark also followed up. And now here's the bad news. Mark does not have Apple Care. Yeah, so and he said they quoted him over $300 to perform this repair. Now, to add to the puzzle, Dave, he has another machine. Uh, I guess this machine was a machine he bought and he gave another machine, which if it's, if it's the same model that does have Apple care on it. Now, I don't know how far Apple is going to go as far as letting him hmm. swap Apple care on one MacBook for another. And I don't know, 300 bucks to repair it. You know, you got to wait against how much a new machine costs. Well, so what I recommend in situations like this, when you don't have Apple care, Ask Apple not about a repair for specific parts, but say, look, you know, I want to send it in for flat rate repair. 
And this is essential. You know, Apple's repair facility really isn't built to do repairs, you know, for specific items. In fact, they encourage their mail-in repair people to replace as many components as they think need replacing. And, you know, your GPU is a perfect example, as is your keyboard. Was there anything wrong with it? No, probably not. But you know what? It was worn out. And those people get a slap on the wrist if that computer comes back after they've shipped it back to you. So, you know, so they're really built there to just see the computer, fix everything that's wrong with it and send it back. Now, when you're under Apple Care, that's fine because there's no charge to you for, you know, if they replace your motherboard, even if they didn't need to. Of course, for Mark, well, there is. But a flat rate repair, uh, it's not it's not cheap. I think it's going to be a little more than your 300 on a MacBook Pro. I think it's about 350. It might be 330. I forget. But the flat rate repair essentially buys you Apple Care when you're out of warranty for one repair and 90 days thereafter. Uh, so you, you tell them flat rate repair, you send it in. They do everything that you just saw, John. You know, if there's any question about the display, boom, they replace the display. If there's, you know, question about the motherboard, that's replaced to everything goes. And uh, and then you get a, you know, a 90, essentially a 90 day warranty extension. So look into that right. flat rate repair thing. It's not a bad option. And, and you know, I got to think also, Dave, I mean, what he is describing is identical to what I ran into. Yep. And I'm going to say, Although at first I thought it was it was a self-inflicted wound here. I'm leaning towards it may have been that my machine was slowly degrading and it could have been a problem with the uh, graphic processor that somehow. Yeah. Uh, though on the other hand, if, if you know the architecture of the MacBook Pro, there are these two chips. There's a north bridge and a south bridge. And I looked and the thing is one of these chips talks to the graphic processor and the other chip talks to the USB bus. But maybe. Maybe there was. So it's possible. Now, he could call them and say, you know, is there I'm, I'm experiencing this, this problem that someone else I know and, and don't mention again, don't mention the uh, <laughs> the spill. But just say I know someone who ran into the exact same issue and it was repaired. And one of the problems with the graphic processor and they may say that now there may be a repair program. I looked quickly and there there's not. But there were repair programs for some MacBooks that had right. issues with the graphic processor. So it could be that one of the ways this problem manifests itself is it traumatizes the USB bus uh, on which, as, as uh, we, we indicated, the Bluetooth controller is also on the USB bus. So right. even though it sounds weird, he, he may be able to score yeah. a, a repair under some sort of repair program for the graphic chip that causes this grief. So yeah. could be. Could be. All right. We have uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left. We've been we've been chatty today, John, and that's a good thing. Uh, but we do have a couple of tips to share to share. So we'll start. To, we'll start with this one. Hey, David, John, I don't have much time because I'm about to get caught. But I have attained some vital, important information that I think I should share with you and your listeners. Go. <laughs> if you have some sort of tech question or quandary, you can email feedback at macgeekgab.com. Yes, that's feedback at macgeekgab.com. Or if you really, really want to, you can email premium at macgeekgab.com. If that's not fast enough for you, you can call 206-666-GEEK, 666-GEEK, which is 4335. Or you can even Skype to i got to go now because... I'm about to get caught, but don't be like me. Don't get caught. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. That's fantastic. Uh, all right. And then we had, uh, uh, that's awesome. Uh, Mark has a comment <laughs> about something we talked about in a previous show. So go, Mark. Yeah, good day, Dave. 
and John. How you going, guys? Just recording a little uh, message here and answer to a question that you had about how to uh, set the default zoom on Safari. I heard a tip a while back, and this is what they suggested you could do. Uh, you would save a, a text document uh, with the words body, then bracket. That's the little bracket, um, the curly brackets. Then zoom column, then the percentage, say 140. Then um, you'd have a co uh, semicolon, comma, then bracket. And then you save that, not as a text document, but as a .css. You pop that in your documents folder somewhere. Then you open Safari, click on Advanced, and then it's got style sheet, then you'd click on that and you'd choose that document you just uh, saved and then that'll, every time you open a web page or a, uh, the, the browser, it'll open that page to that zoom level of 140%. So that's what I found to be really handy, so the text is readable. So I just thought I'd pass that on. So Mark from New Zealand saying, see ya. Bye guys. Thanks Mark. Much appreciated. Wow. I'll, I'll take I'll take the uh, the one little line that that it's a it's a line of CSS that that you're just yeah, increasing that's the font. A good one. Yep. I'll put that in the show notes as I publish the show today, so it'll be there. Um, you you can see it, and then just put that into into a .css file and and point Safari at it, just like Mark said, and you're golden. So. Uh, and then finally, Michael with his uh, we talked about syncing bookmarks and show 305 or well here you go michael hi guys this is michael in boston i have a suggestion for gary in episode hex 131 if you remember he was using safari because it was the only way to sync bookmarks to his ipod and ipad and he had issues with font sizes another option for him if his only reason for safari is the syncing is to use another browser like firefox or chrome and use x marks to sync his bookmarks back to safari and from there to his ipod and ipad for a time there was a standalone app that handled the syncing but now you may have to install an, an extension and launch safari but it should still work anyway love the show you can cut me off here all right thanks michael Anything and else? it sounded even more impressive, Dave. Yeah. It's also episode 461, Octal, but... <laughs> I like it. Whoops, that's the intro I was playing. See, I take a week off, John, and I start clicking the wrong buttons, and the band comes in playing the wrong thing, and I fire them, and then I gotta rehire them, apologize. They well, you know, we, we, we don't have to, due to our mystery, man, we, we don't have to tell people how to contact us, Dave. No, but if don't. we did... One way to do it would be... No, well, no, 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 we no. don't. <laughs> Come on, we got to get out of here. That's, That's right. right. Uh, we'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast for converting this and all or most of our episodes into AAC. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, Cashfly, of course, provides all the bandwidth, and we appreciate that. Podcast Marketplace includes the A5 and A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebone Software, Text Expander from Smile, and Notebook from Circus Ponies, all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. Anything else to discuss here, John, to mention, to say? We're going to Macworld Expo, end of this month. Um, 
Come see us. We are closing the show on the main floor so you can see us just with an exhibits badge. Uh, Five o'clock Saturday afternoon, which would be 27, 28, 29th of, uh, of January. You can see us in San Francisco. Yeah, isn't there some uh, some uh, uh, get-together, uh, some festivity? That, that, uh... Cirque du Mac 8 is happening on uh, Thursday night, the 27th. And let me see, things have been in flux with all these sponsors. In flux by meaning we've added more, so let me make sure I get them Sweet. all. Yep, we've got Microsoft Ecelerate, Project Wizards, Smile, Denon Morantz, Data Robotics, and Code Weavers on board as sponsors for this year's Cirque du Mac. And I'm wow. really, really stoked about it. I, I, yeah, things are moving along. It's, it's going to be a fun, fun show. Uh, so, pulling it all together. It's always a little bit crazy at the last minute here, but... Uh but that's a good thing. Yeah. If you want tickets, uh, keep listening. We'll have uh, we'll have something for you, and we'll have even more details for you in the uh, premium show later this week. We do have a premium option: two extra episodes per month. Uh, the warm, fuzzy feeling that you get from supporting your two favorite geeks, and uh, and access to all the archives and all that good stuff. So uh, check that out at macgeekgab.com. You can click the little buy button right there, and uh, it's twenty five bucks for six months. We appreciate all of you premium subscribers. All right. I think that's it, John. Wow. Another year, you know? I know. Never another year has doing, begun. Never, never thought we'd been doing this before. <laughs> you and me both, man. You and me both. I thought I would get sick of you by now, but uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> and you, you, me. But no. Right. No, it works out, man. It's good. Thank you so much, everyone, for subscribing and contributing and asking your questions and helping out. Uh, we could not and would not want to do this without you. Have fun and, uh, and don't get caught.